Hello, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Liberal Lawyer. The first thing I'd like to do is talk about what this podcast is not. All right, this podcast is not about liberalism per se. This podcast is not about specifically giving legal advice or giving specific legal advice. This podcast is not limited to legal matters, although legal matters obviously will come up from time to time. This podcast is not, for you attorneys out there who might be listening, advice about how to grow rich from marketing your law firm or anything like that. This podcast is not about marketing my own services as an attorney. Notice I have not given you my name. That's by design. I have not given you my geographic location. That's also by design, because I really mean it. This podcast is not an advertisement for myself or any of those other things I mentioned. As I put at the bottom of the description on the podcast page, my intent is to highlight anything that seems relevant or worthy of analysis or commentary, while still recognizing that because everything is connected, nothing can be examined in a vacuum. And what that means in a practical sense is that this podcast is meant to address all kinds of things that are topical and newsworthy and maybe not getting properly covered or, or analyzed, actually more, more, more like not properly analyzed in the greater world. And I do think that that matters because I think the media gets it wrong in many ways, but that's for a future episode. <laughs> this episode, what I want to talk about is something that's been in the news an awful lot in 2018. And it might seem like a partisan issue, but it's really not because it applies to both sides. But it's why it is that I think a lot of scholars get it wrong and a lot of legal experts get it wrong when they talk about whether a sitting president can actually be indicted. I know a lot of people out there say, well, the Office of Legal Counsel memo says that you can't. Well, that's not true. It never said it could. You can't. And they also say, well, the Supreme Court has never weighed in. Actually, the Supreme Court has kind of weighed in, maybe not on that specific issue, but they've weighed in enough to make a solid legal foundation, and we'll get to that. But there are, besides the jurisprudential, which is about 230 years now and counting, there are plenty of good reasons, legally speaking, why it is that a, a president actually is subject to indictment. And where you have to start, for the lawyers out there, you'll understand this, and I'll explain it for the non-lawyers in just a second, is something called legislative history. And for the non-lawyers out there, I can see the lawyers rolling their eyes already, but for the non-lawyers out there, what legislative history is, is it's the notations surrounding a legislature's drafting and composition of a bill that later eventually would become law. If it's, if it's at the state level, it's signed by the governor. If it's at the federal level, it's signed by the president. But when a legislature, be it the Congress or a state legislature, decides it wants to address a, a problem, what it's going to do is it will create some sort of a record usually in debate and discussion, but it will create a record of what is the problem that we're trying to address and how is it that we're actually going to address it. So by the time the legislation actually gets drafted and eventually signed into law, 
you're not just looking at a naked document. What you're looking at is the document that is the end result of the notations that came before it, which explain why it is the document or the, the, the enactment was created to begin with. So the problem it addresses and how it is that the legislature thought about the problem and what they wanted to do in order to address it in a legislative manner. And that is called legislative history. And a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say, well, the Constitution, we don't know what was in their minds. Yes, we do. We do know what was in their minds. Because there's a series of 85, I think, essays called the, the Federalist Papers, which were penned by people like Alexander Hamilton, who is not simply the person who appears in the mus musical, but he actually was one of the framers of the Constitution. And a guy named John Jay, who isn't just some guy who you know, was lost to history. I believe he was the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, so he had a little bit of legal understanding and knowledge. And these guys put together the Federalist Papers, which, as I said, I think number 85 in total. And they were a series of essays that were directed to the people of the state of New York, which explained what the Constitutional Convention discussed how they discussed it, how they thought about the problems, how they thought about setting up our constitutional form of government, and in addition, what it, what it was that the Constitution actually said, and so how they thought about these issues in the constitutional context. So in fact, we do have the notations surrounding the drafting and the adoption of the Constitution that explain to us what was in their minds. And specifically, when it comes to indictment of a president, you can look at, and I'm, I'm not going to bore you with reading the paragraphs, by the way, because the language is somewhat old, and it's a bit arcane, and it's you can go read it, you can pull it up online, that's not a problem, but I'm not going to bore you with reading it to you. But you have to look at uh, Federalist number 65, which was drafted in 1788, paragraphs number 2, 8, and 9, Federalist number 69, which comes shortly after that, paragraphs 2 and 4. Federalist number 70, paragraph 16, you know, still a little bit later, but all in the late 1780s. Now, you have to examine the backdrop too, but we'll get to that in a minute. The, the, the language in those paragraphs I just, noted, I just noted make it clear that the constitutional remedy, the congressional constitutional remedy of impeachment and removal of a president was not a sole and exclusive remedy, but in fact was supplemental to subjecting the president of the United States to the criminal laws. Why did they do this? Well, they did this because they felt that a president should be of the highest moral and integrity, moral character and integrity. And the way to do this was to make sure that the president was not only subject to the law of the land as enacted by Congress, in other words, the criminal statutes, to make sure that the president wasn't doing things like taking bribes or, you know, killing people, as was once famously said by the current sitting occupant of the, of the Oval Office, um, but not, not just subject to the criminal laws, but also subject to the will of the people as expressed through the Congress of the United States. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that, primarily speaking, if you examine the 
Federalist Papers that I was talking about, specifically the paragraphs to which I referred, that the first line of defense against a corrupt president was that the criminal laws of the United States, the law of the land, should essentially operate to keep a president from committing criminal acts, right? To keep a president from bribe, accepting bribes, to keep a president from killing people or committing crimes of, of, of common kinds of, uh, or sorts. And that would be the first line of defense. But in, in the event that a president either didn't commit acts that rose to the level of criminality or in the case where they maybe did, but the Congress still had to remove the president from the office because the president's conduct was unbecoming or unfitting of a president, then the supplemental remedy came in the, in the form of the impeachment and removal, which was a congressional remedy. But notice that a conviction in the Senate, which would result in removal, is not a criminal conviction. But that's, again, not that does not mean that the Congress was trying, I'm sorry, the framers were, was, were trying to exempt or carve out an exception for the president from the criminal statutes. The fact of the matter is that they intended, if you look at the structure of the language, for both to apply, the criminal statutes and the congressional remedy of impeachment of, and removal. And if you don't believe that as, as it's on, on its own, but believe me, it is, it is a it is a sound constitutional uh, explanation. But in case you don't believe it right straight away, you have to look at the context. And this is something else that legislative, uh, legislative history kind of matter, where it matters. The context was that they had just come out of a war with, with Great Britain, right? And they had fought specifically to get rid of a king or a monarch in, in that case. And the king or the monarch was, in fact, above the law in jolly old England. And the constitutional system that the framers were setting up was specifically designed so that we did not have a king or a monarch. They wanted to avoid that problem. And so it makes no sense for anybody who still thinks that a president can't be impeached, uh, excuse me, indicted, makes no sense that the framers would have turned around after fighting that war and given to exactly one person a special dispensation to be above the law, right? I mean, if you think about it, logically speaking, why would they have fought a war to get rid of a king only to install a king as part of a constitutional system? Why didn't they just set up a monarchy? Well, they didn't set up a monarchy. There's no question that everybody from the vice president on down is subject to indictment and, and conviction. And the only question that people seem to have, and quite frankly, I'm not really understanding why they have it, hence this, this podcast, is that, well, is the president subject to indictment? Well, yes, of course the president is subject to indictment. I just told you two reasons why, but I'm actually going to give you a third reason. It's the 230 years of constitutional jurisprudence that has grown up through the federal courts. And in case you didn't know this, the Supreme Court is a federal court. It is, it is in fact, the Supreme It's the federal court, right? I mean, we have lower courts as, con as Congress shall constitute from time to time, and those are the federal courts at the cir circuit court and district court level. But the Supreme Court is the constitutionally created uh, federal court for this country. And in the last two plus centuries, 
Supreme Court jurisprudence has said repeatedly that the Constitution circumscribes the laws. Well, what does that mean? That means that the Constitution is the framework upon which all the other laws are built. And if you think of it as a structure, or as I like to think of it as a container, in other words, the Constitution essentially is kind of the wall of the pool, and all the other laws are the water running around in the pool. But either way you look at it, in order for a president to be above the law, or not subject to those laws that are either built on the framework or contained within the pool in this analogy, then you would have to say that the framers would have placed exactly one person outside of that pool or above that, st that structure, such that that person was essentially on the level of a king or a monarch. Again, didn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. It's not what the framers tried to do. Looking at the Federalist Papers, the language makes that very clear. Looking at the constitutional jurisprudence over the last 230 years, it can't possibly be the case that a president is not subject to the law of the land. There's one final thing you need to understand or, or need to appreciate here. The Constitution itself is a document that was set up by the framers in order to do what? What was the purpose? The purpose was to protect the population from an abusive government or an overreaching government. Well, if the Constitution itself was, to, was set up to protect the population from an overreaching or abusive government, then what is the probability, what is the likelihood that the framers would have given the executive or the president in, parlance, in common parlance the ability to essentially escape or be outside the power or the limited scope of what the Constitution is supposed to do. Does it really make any sense that the, that the framers would have set up a Constitution that would protect the population from an overreaching or, or abusive government and yet give to one person and one person alone the ability to stand outside of that framework? No doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so you have to accept the idea that the president, rather than being outside or above that framework, is not also being protected by that framework, that in fact, the Constitution is a way to hold the president accountable. Because otherwise, the Constitution doesn't work in the way it's supposed to. And if you remember, right in the very first three words of the Constitution, we the people. Those are the words that tell you that the Constitution is not about the overarching or overreaching or abusive government and all expansive powers. It's about what we, the people, are giving to the government of what amounts to limited powers, but also that we should be protected from the abuse thereof. And so it makes no sense that the Office of Legal Counsel memoranda from the early 70s or the late 1990s are written in a correct way. They are look, they're looking at the Constitution incorrectly. They're looking at it inside out. They're looking for reasons why the president should be protected from the laws. And the fact of the matter is that the very structure of the Constitution, the legislative history of the Constitution, the constitutional jurisprudence over the last 230 years is everything opposite to that. It's why the president should actually be accountable to the laws and not standing above them. And it is not inconsistent 
for the president to not only be accountable to the criminal statutes, but for, in fact, the president to have the extra added obligation, if you will, to also be subject to the will of the people as, an, as expressed through the Congress of the United States, which is impeachment and removal from office. It's the only thing that makes any sense. This has been The Liberal Lawyer with your first episode. I hope to see you on further episodes. Thanks for listening.